Good morning. I'm happy to be here with you today. For those of you that I haven't had the chance to meet yet, my name is Joe Krafchick. I'm a member here at Broadway and I've been attending with my wife, Heather, and our three kids for about seven years now. Before we begin today, I want to invite you to join me in a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to gather together and to study your word. I pray that you give us open minds and hearts to listen to what you need to say to us. Please remove the distractions and the outside noise and continue to guide our ways so that we might continue to strive and follow after you. Amen. Throughout the summer, Pastor Gary and others have been leading us through sermons looking at different people and characters throughout the Bible. I would like to continue that today in the Old Testament with a look at David. I want to spend some time looking at David's life and the larger context of kings, country, specifically Israel, and the idea of falling short. We know a lot about David as we read through the Old Testament. He has many memorable stories that we continue to tell and teach from today. We remember his entrance into the biblical narrative where he battles and takes down the Philistine warrior Goliath, his friendship with Jonathan, the son of King Saul, his ascension to the throne of Israel, and his numerous victories in battle. These are all some of the highlights of his life recorded in the Old Testament. Of course, there are negative stories as well about David. The many wives, the abuse of power with Bathsheba, the failings of many of his children. But before we get too far down this road, let's build a bit of a picture from the biblical account of David as king. The king that precedes David in Israel is Saul who unfortunately has some failings and shortcomings as king. And in 1 Samuel chapter 13, we read that God has decided to seek out and appoint a new king that is a man after his own heart, a man that is unlike Saul, who has failed to keep the Lord's commands. That king, of course, is David, who leads Israel during a time in their history. The country is largely faithful and they are blessed by God. Battles are being won, Israel is adding to their land, the law is being adhered to. Things are pretty good overall. Though, even when things are going well, there are still problems. For Israel, there are often problems with their kings. It has to do with the fact that the kings are people, and like all people, us included, they have their flaws. Of course, these flaws are magnified by their position and their power. Sometimes their flaws are increased because of their position and the power that, that goes along with it. Israel's relationship with their kings throughout the Old Testament is often a rocky one. There are good kings along the way throughout history, but most of them aren't very good and some of them are downright wicked. Part of that has to do with the fact that Israel wasn't really supposed to have a king. They already had God leading them, fighting for them, and saving them. This is one of the things that made Israel unique. It was to be a country with a single God acting as king. Of course, the law does provide guidelines for what a king of Israel is supposed to be like, should there be a king. And that can be found in Deuteronomy chapter 17, starting at verse 14, it says, When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you and have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, Let us set a king over us like all the nations around us. Be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. He must be for among your fellow Israelites. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not an Israelite. 
The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. When he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law taken from that of the Levitical priests. It is to be with him and he is to read it all the days of his life, so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees, and not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites, and turn from the law to the right or to the left. Then he and his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom in Israel. Israel is supposed to be content with having God as their king, but if they aren't, this is what a king in Israel should look like. Notice that these are definitely not typical traits of kings of the ancient world. The problem is that the Israelites struggle with this idea of just having God as their king. You might be able to see what God has done for you, but you can't see God, who is present without being physically present. Eventually, the Israelites begin to grumble about not having a king. They take this complaint to the prophet Samuel, who as prophet is kind of God's representative in Israel. And in 1 Samuel chapter 8, we can read the exchange about the Israelites wanting a king, starting in chapter 8, verse 6. But when they, the Israelites, said, Give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him, Listen to all the people are saying to you, It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king, as they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly, and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, This is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest, and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said. We want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. The things that God and Samuel lay out to the people here are the sorts of things ancient kings do. These aren't the things that Israelite kings should do according to the law. In Saul, Israel had a king who was very much like an ancient king who did these things that Samuel said kings would do. However, David is a contrast to Saul in that he is a man after God's own heart. 
David may be a man after God's own heart, but he is still a king. And we have to remember these texts about kings when we look at his life. The text about what a king of Israel should be like, and a text about what a king in Israel will do. David, being a man after God's own heart, leads to a largely successful run as king of Israel. His early reign is marked by faithfulness and blessing. However, as his life progresses, things become more problematic. The most infamous of these stories is the story of David and Bathsheba, starting in 2 Samuel chapter 11. I'm not going to read the entire text here, because we are likely all familiar with the main points of this story. David stays behind while the rest of the Israelite military is at war with the Amorites. After seeing Bathsheba, he uses his power and position to have her brought to him so that he can sleep with her. She becomes pregnant, and after David's efforts to cover things up fail, he has her husband, Uriah the Hittite, murdered. David is then punished by God when the child dies. David and Bathsheba have another child who will himself eventually become king. That child is Solomon. There's a lot going on in this story. It's very terrible and very sad. It's important to note that the story doesn't end with the birth of Solomon. In fact, even our chapter doesn't end the story with the birth of Solomon. Remember that this whole thing starts because Israel at war, is at war with the Ammonites and David has stayed in Jerusalem. It's a war account with the Bathsheba account in the middle. Now let's read to the end of the chapter in 2 Samuel 12. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and he went to her and made love to her. She gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon. The Lord loved him, and because the Lord loved him, he sent word through Nathan the prophet to name him Jedidiah. That's not the end of the story, though. It continues, starting verse 26. Meanwhile, Joab fought against Rabbah of the Ammonites and captured the royal citadel. Joab then sent messengers to David, saying, I have fought against Rabbah and taken its water supply. Now muster the rest of the troops and besiege the city and capture it. Otherwise, I will take the city and it will be named after me. So David mustered the entire army and went to Rabbah and attacked and captured it. David took the crown from their king's head and it was placed on his own head. It weighed a talent of gold and it was set with precious stones. David took a great quantity of plunder from the city and brought out the people who were there consigning them to labor with saws and with iron picks and axes, and he made them work at brick-making. David did this to all the Ammonite towns. Then he and his entire army returned to Jerusalem. The incident with Bathsheba is not the one blemish on a spotless record of David as king. The birth of Solomon doesn't conclude a negative story and correct everything that has gone wrong to this point. In fact, you could argue that this story, an abuse of power by David, is a hinging point in his life and reign as king, and is really the end of him as a positive king for Israel. At the end of the chapter here, we have David who comes to fight against the Ammonites, only after it looks like Joab will capture the city and get the credit for doing so. After taking the city, David then has the crown taken from the Ammonite king and placed on his own head. He then takes the plunder from the city. He takes the people of the city and sends them to work with saws, picks, and axes, or they are sent to make bricks. Now, 
Scripture often is telling us lots of things without directly saying those things, and that is happening here. Because we today are so far removed from the time in the world of the Bible, we have to work a bit harder to pick up on some of these things. For instance, in these last few verses, the Lord is noticeably absent from the story. It's David who has the crown taken and placed on his head. It's David taking the plunder from the city. David takes the people, sends them to work, sends them to make bricks. The Lord isn't present during all of this. Then there's the fact that David, as the king of Israel, is sending the Ammonites to make bricks. This is a big alarm for us as readers. Brick making is the work that Pharaoh made the Israelites do in Egypt. This is the type of work that made the Israelites cry out to the Lord to come and save them. When we read that David is sending people to make bricks, we read that Israel has become like Egypt and David has become like Pharaoh. This wasn't part of the plan for Israel, their king, or their people. Remember that this is the reality the Israelites signed up for. Remember their words we heard earlier in 1 Samuel 8. We want a king over us, then we will be like all the other nations, with a king to lead us to go out before us and fight our battles. And that is precisely what has happened. The Israelites, as God's chosen people, were supposed to be different than all the nations around them. They were supposed to be unique, set apart, and intentionally different. The covenant that God made with Abraham in Genesis was that Abraham would have numerous descendants that would be a people that would be set apart, living in a particular place or land, and that they might be different from the nations around them so that they might be a blessing to the nations around them. The problem with the Israelites asking for a king to be like the other nations is they start to look and act like the nations around them. Israel becomes a kingdom with a king that is interested in things like building an empire, taking plunder, fighting wars, getting more land, taking and enslaving other people. It is difficult for Israel to be a blessing to the nations around them when they are the same as those nations. It's such a problem that even when they have a king like David, a man after God's own heart, they still act like the kings and the nations around them. It is difficult to build an empire while you are supposed to be a blessing to all the nations around you. Now, when we read this today, it can feel a bit detached from our lives. Maybe we can't associate fully with the power dynamics of being a king in an ancient world, or we're not aspiring to build an empire for ourselves or our country. This is not an ancient problem, and hopefully I haven't done too much history to instill that this isn't applicable for us today. This is still something for us to keep in mind because it is about God's people blessing others. It's about reconciliation, whether that is Israel in the Old Testament or us as followers of Jesus today. Simply put, in our world today, we need to be aware of people, movements, political parties, positions, and systems that exert themselves and their power over others. These things are not blessings to others as they prioritize wealth, power, and fame over the lives and well-beings of other people. As followers of Jesus and believing that all people are created in the image of God, 
We should be extremely aware of and on the lookout for these things and actively standing in opposition to power dynamics that strip others of their dignity, rights, or their humanity. When I think about this topic, I think about the book of Revelation. Those of you that were here at Broadway a few years ago for our sermon series on Revelation may remember some of what I'm going to talk about. But Revelation chapter 18 talks about the fall of Babylon. Of course, this isn't the demise of a literal place, Babylon, but represents a system or a way of life that stands in opposition to God's desire for the world. So let's read about the fall of Babylon in Revelation 18, starting at verse 9. When the kings of the earth who committed adultery with her and shared her luxury see the smoke of her burning, they will weep and mourn over her. Terrified at her torment, they will stand far off and cry, Woe, woe to you, great city, you mighty city of Babylon. In one hour your doom has come. The merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Cargoes of gold, silver, precious stones and pearls, fine linen, purple silk and scarlet cloth, every sort of citron wood and articles of every kind made of ivory, costly wood, bronze, iron and marble. Cargoes of cinnamon and spice, of incense, myrrh and frankincense, of wine, olive oil, of fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and carriages, and human beings sold as slaves. The merchants of earth in the passage, the one who benefit from this system, mourn the loss of the market for their luxurious items, for livestock, and for human beings sold as slaves. Stop and think about, imagine mourning the loss of a slave market. If you were here when we went through Revelation, you may remember that Michael Zook from Columbia Bible College came and did a couple evening lectures for us. And I remember him talking about this passage specifically, that what is translated in verse 13 as human beings sold as slaves can also be translated as human bodies and souls, which conjures this image of merchants of the earth dealing in human souls. The idea of dealing in souls to me is the idea of exploitative systems in place in the world. We in the West are culpable in this trading of souls, often without being aware of it. I'm sure that we can all think of ways in which we enjoy comforts, luxuries, or goods as a direct result of other people, others created in the same image of God as us being exploited. It's not right, and it should bother us. I am not here to claim that I have this all figured out, because I don't. I struggle with going down this path in a sermon because I don't want to act like I know more than I do. And I don't want this to be a guilt or a shame-driven message. That's not the point of this at all. Instead, my hope is that this is an opportunity for me, for you, for all of us to look at some of the things around and consider what we can do. Where can we shine light into darkness? The reality is that we can't correct the exploitation and abuses and corrupt systems of the entire world by ourselves. We can't do everything. But we can likely all do something. I remember when Heather and I heard Michael give this talk, we really decided to look for something that we could do. That thing for us was a small thing, but it was coffee. We decided that from this point, we were only going to buy fair trade coffee. It's not a big thing, it's not a perfect answer. I'm sure there's lots of problems with it that I'm not even aware of. 
But if us spending a little bit more on the coffee that we drink meant that somewhere in the world it improved someone's quality of life even a little bit, then it was worth it. We can't do everything, but this is something that we thought we could do. The idea is that the world that we live in is a complex place, and there are so many things happening that we aren't aware of. The point is not to feel guilt and shame, but to be aware of these merchants of earth dealing in human souls. Look for the things that we can do. Many people doing small things is better than nothing. Being aware of the world that we live and looking for these systems is often the first step. We started today by looking at King David and what it means to be a man after God's own heart, but still ultimately falling short. The purpose was not to discredit David as king or as a person, but instead to consider the problems of powers and systems in the world, the things that impose on other people, strip people of their humanity. That should be troubling for us, as we believe all people are created in the image of God. To think about what it means for Israelites to be a different nation in the world, so that they might be a blessing to others. For us, what it means to look for powers and systems that oppress others. As followers of Jesus, to look for ways to subvert these systems, to be agents of reconciliation in the world because of the work that Christ has done for us. Thanks for tuning in this week. Go in peace. Be the light that shines on the darkness in your world. Amen.